There are some days I learn more um, from kids' moment than the rest of the service. So uh, it's okay if that's today. Thank you, Sue, for bringing that to our children. Really appreciate it. Uh, my name is Joel Edwards. Uh, it's, it's good to be with you um, and share with you again. So it's uh, finally fall, right? Amen. Amen. <laughs> I'm grieving it. Uh, last week, we started uh, the message in Revelation, Revelation series, with a focus on the author of the message, Jesus. Jason brought forth the point that despite our desire to understand the future, decipher prophecy and its application to our lives in Revelation, this book in the Bible is first and foremost about God and his plan through his son, Jesus. So this book is the testimony of Jesus as delivered by John. Verse 3, God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church, and he blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says for the time is near. That's us. And I, I'll admit, when I've, when I've read Revelation um, many times before, I have not thought of it that way. I've thought about, let me figure this out, let me look at the future. In fact, I remember the first time I read it, somewhere at 10 to 12, um, and I really thought these letters, I kind of like, I read through them, and I thought, man, that, that book was awesome, except for the first two chapters. And of course, that's what we're looking at today. These letters to the churches, when I was younger, I wanted to get past it and go to all the cool stuff. But in reality, this is what we need to hear. These letters are for us. As we heard last week, his return is imminent, possible any time, impossible at no time. Revelation begins with these, these seven letters to seven churches. And again, seven is a number of completion. Not only is it a letter to each individual church, very short, but these are really letters to the big C church. They didn't split these up into seven and send them to, to each. They sent the whole thing, the whole revelation to all churches. So seven, not, on, not only is it an individual message tailored for each church, it's a message for us, the big C church. It was for everyone to learn from. Examining what, and today we're going to be examining what is Jesus saying to us by how he spoke to this church. As I was thinking through this, I realized that receiving a letter is a bit of a foreign concept. I personally can't remember the last time I sat down and wrote a personalized letter. It's been at least a decade, maybe. That probably says more about me than anything else. If I have to send a birthday card or a note, I spend a lot of time thinking about what I want to say and then standing in the aisle looking for just the right card to say it. I want to bar somebody else's words rather than sit down and use my own. And, and of course, there's a card for every occasion. 37 and a half birthday, we've got the perfect message for that. You don't even have to think about it. The next closest thing we have to a letter is probably email. And I have a confession to make. Some of you who don't know me well, um, and some of you who do, I have a confession to make. Um, I hate email. I hate it. It makes me feel perpetually overwhelmed, and I'm just not really good at it. I miss important things. I see too many unimportant things. There's a lot of words. And if I click on the wrong thing, I'm hacked and my entire identity is exposed. So there's a lot of liability in this. 
UC Irving in the U.S. Army actually did a study on heart rate and focus related to email, and they found that limiting email access dramatically decreases stress levels. I can relate. We don't treat letters the same way today. I can type out an email so quickly that I don't think through the words I'm using, or if I want to be really purposeful about a nice message, I just go borrow somebody else's words in their nice little card. But handwriting a letter, it's very different. It's a very careful message with a very targeted purpose. And this letter, Revelation, contains a prophecy with a purpose. It is after Christ has ascended to heaven, it is his letter to the church. It's God's story, it's God's plan, and he desired to promote endurance for the churches through the end. And, and, and very specific messages to the seven churches, delivering this to us and, and the others as well. Today we're looking at the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2. Revelation 2, 1 through 7. So what do we know about Ephesus? Ephesus was a wealthy port city in the Roman province of Asia, now Turkey, positioned near several key land routes into Asia Minor. So it's a port, lots of place to get your goods to other cities. It had a massive theater which held 20,000 people. Um, which is about the size of the U.S. Cellular Center, or, or excuse me, it's about three times the size of the U.S. Cellular Center downtown, or about the size of Spectrum Stadium where the Charlotte Hornets play in Charlotte. Massive theater. The Church of Ephesus was planted by Paul on his second missionary journey recorded in Acts 18. He actually spent quite a bit of time here a few years later. He spent two to three years there preaching and teaching, which is recorded in Acts 19. It was a vibrant church in a city that had a massive temple. The temple was actually bigger than the theater, dedicated to the goddess Artemis, known to the Ephesians as the goddess of fertility. The way these, these gods worked, they were taken by different cultures. So the Greek goddess Ar- Artemis started off as the goddess of the hunt or something, and then it was the Roman god Diana, and then it was the, the god of the Ephesians, Artemis, the goddess of fertility. It was not a little temple. This is, in fact, I didn't know this until I started looking it up. Some of you probably did. The temple in Ephesus was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was massive. It was destroyed multiple times throughout centuries and took centuries to rebuild. And so um, if you've seen the picture of that, one of the seven wonders, it had something like, um, you know, 25 columns or something. It's it's a very uh, massive Greek uh, architecture. It is also the church in Ephesus that is the recipient of the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So from a timeline perspective, Paul planted the church, he came back and taught in the church, then he wrote to the church about 20 years later, 15, 10, 20 years later, somewhere in that time when he was in prison, and then um, many years later, the apostle John uh, wrote this book of Revelation. Church tradition actually holds that Ephesus became the home of the apostle John, who, the, the same one that wrote this book, who brought Mary, the mother of Jesus, there to live as well. We don't know if that's true. Church tradition says it happened, but it's certainly possible. And if so, it just further paints the picture of a very strong church, planted by Paul, watered by John, before his banishment to Patmos, where he wrote this letter, uh, Revelation. So with all that context, let's read the message from Jesus, written by the hand of John, to the Ephesians at the church of Ephesus. Ephesus. Revelation 2, 1 through 7. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, 
the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know all the things you do. I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You have discovered they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. But this is in your favor. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans, just as I do. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life and the paradise of God. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you will speak to your people today um, through your, your, your encouragement and admonishment to Ephesus. I pray that you will open our hearts, that you will uh, help us discern realistically where we are, um, and that we might learn from this revelation um, letter. May you be glorified in everything we say and do. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's step through this, kind of verse by verse. And this is the first letter we've read, but we will see this thing repeated over and over again as we go through to the seven churches. All these letters follow a fairly basic outline. It starts with, to the angel of a church, Jesus says, I know this. And most often um, offers some sort of encouragement or praise about what they're doing well. Then I have this against you. Usually offers some reproof uh, where applicable. Next step, the one with ears, who has ears, must pay attention to what the Spirit says. And this is repeated seven times in almost the exact words. He wants us to hear this, not just Ephesus, but anybody who has ears. And then there's a promise. So let's start at verse 1. The message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. And we see earlier in Revelation that's the angels of these churches. And the lampstands are the churches. In other words, he, Christ, holds the angels, the messengers in his hand, and walks among the churches. Let me start by saying this about the word translated as angels here. Don't get hung up on it. I'll tell you exactly what it means. The Greek word is called angelos, um, which is a word for messenger. Many times used to refer to angels, but also referred to used to other messengers. John the Baptist in Matthew 1.10 uh, is, is talked about as the messenger ahead of Jesus. And that word, angelos, is used to, um, to talk about him. It could be human messengers, human pastors, or literal angels from heaven sent as a messenger. And we do know that that happened. We see in the book of Daniel um, that there were messenger angels engaged in very real spiritual warfare. In fact, one of them comes to Daniel and said, I'm sorry I was delayed 21 or 23 days by uh, an evil angel of the realm. Today, because of the context, we, we don't want to get too focused on going exactly who were those angels, what were their names, that's not the point. Really, it is a personification of the church's identity. It's a very literal recipient of this letter, the messenger of the gospel. The church was the messenger of the gospel, the church itself. It's interesting, but don't get hung up on what is the angel and, uh, and miss the point of the rest of it. In this context, it means messenger. Verse 2 is the I know. Jesus sees their hard work for the kingdom. What work was this? 
Ephesus was a wealthy city, and as I mentioned earlier, center of the worship of the Greek guard Artemis, also known to the Romans as Diana. Very nice name, but she was the goddess of fertility. The temple held something between 22 and 25,000 people and took over centuries to construct and rebuild each time it was destroyed. A lot of times we talk about Asheville. Um, It's the the outdoor city or beer city or... um, you know, free will city or whatever it is. You know, there's lots of identities in the city. In Ephesus, the identity of that city was Artemis. Everybody knew that Ephesus was where they worshiped Artemis. That was the identity of the city. Their temple was bigger than their theater. It would be like if, if uh, in Charlotte, if, the, um, if there was a temple there and it was bigger than the Panthers Stadium. It was the identity of that city. We see in Ephesians 5 the instructions that Paul has given to the church, knowing the culture and what they operate. Ephesians 5, let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Obscene stories, foolish talk, and coarse jokes, these are not for you. Instead, let there be a thankfulness to God. You can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. For a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins, for the anger of God will fall on all those who disobey them. Don't participate in the things these people do, for once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from God. So live as people of light, for this light within you produces only what is good and true. So you hear Paul, when he writes to the Ephesians, encouraging them, don't be like the rest of the people in Ephesus. Don't be like the people who worship idols, not just literally the idols of Artemis, but the idols of the culture, who engage in whatever they want to do, greed, sexual immorality, obscene stories, foolish talk. All of this was prevalent. It was a wealthy city, not unlike where uh, America today. So we can take the commendation in Revelation 2.2 to mean that they're hard... where it talks about hard work and patient endurance and not tolerating evil people to mean that they were doing this. Paul had written to them about this, and they were doing this. And Christ says, well done. They were living according to the truth of the gospel rather than engaging in the evil that was around them. Not only that, but they had examined false teachers and found them false. Again, this was something Paul had written to them and taught them to do. Uh, Ephesians 4.11. Now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and to build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and our knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Verse 14. Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so, th- so clever that they sound like the truth. We can take the comment in Revelation 2, too, that they had examined those who said they were apostles and, and found them as liars, was that they had done as Paul had mentioned. They had built a church. They had set teachers up uh, within the church and evangelists and prophets, and they had taught the truth. They were not swayed by evil teaching or false teaching that comes in. And we've experienced that here at Highland, but they've experienced it much more. We have millennia of church 
example to pull upon. We have the whole Bible from beginning to end. They had the letters of the apostles, the apostles' teaching, but they also had people that were coming through teaching them all kinds of random things. In fact, um, Nicolaitan, the Nicolaitans, followed uh, Nicolaitans, uh, which we see a little bit later in the passage, uh, basically taught that, um, you know, you could love God, but do whatever you want. And so their deeds were just do whatever you want, do whatever makes you happy, it's all good. Uh, yet again, another false teaching. So they had strong doctrine and were able to identify and reject the false teaching that came their way. Next verse, Revelation 2.3. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. How would you like to hear that from Christ? From Jesus Christ, and again, if you look in, as Sue said, if you look in Revelation, the, the words are in red. How would you like to hear from Jesus Christ, you have patiently suffered for me without quitting? We don't know for sure all the suffering that the Ephesian church endured. We do know that Paul himself showed them how to suffer by explaining that he was carrying Christ's call and suffering, writing from them in prison. And Ephesians 3 saying they were to feel honored and not to lose heart because of his suffering. They had seen how to suffer. We know that they were at very direct odds with the culture. I mentioned the temple of Artemis a moment ago. In Acts 19, when Paul was teaching in the church at Ephesus, we see that a silversmith stirred up the city against them because he made silver idols. That was, his, was what he did. And this new God Paul was preaching had no idols. He was losing all of his money. He incited a riot against Paul in the city. And we see this picture of the theater. I mentioned, you know, about the size of the, the, where the Charlotte Hornets play, 20,000 people. They were so spun up that when Paul walked in to address this entire theater, everybody gathered in this theater and were complaining about these new Christians and what Paul was doing. Paul walks in and tries to address the theater. And for two hours, they shouted with one voice, great is Artemis. For two hours. So while we don't know all of the suffering endured by this church in Ephesus, if the existence of this very young church, two to three years old at the time, started a citywide riot that almost got out of control, we can sure guess as they grew, their suffering continued and likely even greatened. So let's stop for a minute and look at verses two to three. In short, they worked hard and were against evil. They had strong doctrine, identified false teachers, and they persevered in suffering pretty good, right? I mean, if the letter ended here, I would call that success. I just imagine Paul hearing years later, all of these things that he'd said to them and going, you're doing it. You're doing it. Hylet, I would say a similar thing to you. You're doing it. We've not had that type of suffering that Ephesus was presented with, but this church has worked hard to cling to the truth of Jesus Christ, not always in line with our culture not being made in the image of our culture around us, but instead looking towards the image of Christ and the cross. And we will continue doing so, clinging to the truth. I, um, uh, when, I, when you say you're doing it, um, I don't know if you've, well, most of you, I'm sure have. Robin Williams played uh, Peter Pan in Hook. And um, <laughs> did, you, did you think of that? Yeah, that's what I thought of too. You've got the, when, 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 when he comes back to Neverland and he's thinking through all of this, um, 
you know, what are these kids doing? And they're pretending around the table. He said, there's no food here. And so he starts pretending with them. And suddenly the food appears and becomes real. And this little boy looks up and says, Peter, you're doing it. And it's like the big, you know, there's this big climax moment and Peter starts to become Peter Pan again. But it's interesting, I think, uh, a lot of times we get to that point and we stop. You know, it's, it's like if Peter Pan just started pretending and he was able to eat, but he never learned to fly. We get to this point, we've worked hard against evil, we have strong doctrine, we identify fa- false teachers, persevere in suffering, awesome, we're done, we've gotten there. But that's just the beginning. That's one side of the, um, the scale Jesus Christ, the author author and perfecter of our faith, says in verse 4, But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or others as you did at first. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. Wow. I mean, as good as it feels to hear from Jesus, you have endured and patient in suffering. You have lost your first love, is what Christ says to them. Look how far you have fallen. These sting a little bit, as much encouragement as there was there. And the church in Ephesus probably felt the sting. Some, of, some more direct translations, say, translations simply say, you have abandoned the love you had at first. Regarding love, here's, here's what I want to make the key point. Well, literally, the text says you've abandoned the love you had at first or your first love. Love for Christ and love for others are intimately related. And we're going to look at Scripture here. You cannot really love Christ and not love others. Mark 12, direct from Jesus. Jesus replied, the most important commandment is this. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And the second is equally important, love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. These go together. The Apostle John, the same John that wrote uh, the book of Revelation, 1 John 4, 20. If someone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God who we cannot see? And he has given us this command. Those who love God must also love their fellow believers. I can't really say it any better than that. Do you love God? Most of us here would say yes. You cannot love God if you do not also love others. At this moment, I feel the kind of the prickling, and I identify with the church in Ephesus. They're probably prickling going, whoa, whoa, whoa. We love others. We love everyone no matter who they are. We're very loving people. I mean, that's one of our core values, right, in Highland? All people matter to God. I just have so much love in my heart. (laughs) But Jesus goes further. He doesn't just say, you lost your first love and leave it there. He simply says to demonstrate, look how far you have fallen. They knew, we know we don't love like we did at first. Then he says, turn back to me and do the works you did at first. This is not a passive love. How did people know Jesus loved them during his ministry? He healed them. 
He tangibly said it through his miraculously work, miraculous works. How do we know that Jesus loves us? He died for us. Died on the sins for our cross, took our place. It was the works that Christ did that demonstrates his love for us. He's not just calling them to the feeling of love or the words of love. He's calling them to do the works of love. Let's be real for a moment. We're talking about the church in Ephesus, but it's not just them. It's me. It's us. How many of you have gone to a church or talked to somebody who went to a church and heard strong biblical teaching, but you didn't feel the love from the people there? Have we been a part of that? Maybe. Maybe a little more personal. Who have you loved through your works recently? As I start to ask myself these questions, I really struggle. Why? Why do I say that I love the Lord, come in here, sing his praises, read the Bible, pray, prepare for a sermon, and then struggle to love well through my works? So exactly what is it like to remember our first love, to do the works we did at first? If you spent much time in the church, you've probably heard this. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way, is not irritable, and it keeps no record of being wrong. That's what it looks like. They are works done out of that. They are works done out of compassion, out of selflessness. And a lot of the time, honestly, I think, yeah, I got that. My spouse said something yesterday, and I totally responded in love. <laughs> Didn't jump down her throat, but I responded in love and patient and kindness. It's good, actually. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I don't think that's what he's referring to here with the church in Ephesians. They were probably very loving people. They probably responded well out of the fruits of the Spirit many times. Or maybe I, I have this great group of Christ follower friends that I walk with every day and we hang out every week and it's just so encouraging to be with people that I love. Again, not a bad thing, but we're scratch, just scratching the surface. I think we're talking about so much more here. Here's what we see from the works done at first in the church in Jerusalem. Acts 4, 34. There were no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles and give to those in need. It was active. They were going out, taking the land that they owned, selling it and giving it away. And I'm not asking you to go sell everything you owned, but it was th these were the works they were doing at first. They were active. They were not, not passive. They were active. They were leaning in. We cannot simply stand back and say, love better. You should love better. The works word in this passage tell us that Christ is expecting an active love, expecting an active love. After all, Jesus Christ loved us so much that he died for us. It's more than a feeling. It's more than just a loving response, more than just hanging out with a loving community. All of those are good things. But Christ's love in us is active. He was active in his love toward us. He came, he died. And it propels us forward into many good works. The church in Ephesus was set up perhaps better than almost any other church in, outside of Jerusalem to succeed, and yet they failed on this point. So this is not to say that, 
you know, if we're not loving right, we're really missing it. This is a common thing. It is a common pitfall. It's probably why it was first. Again, Ephesus, teachings from the Apostle John, from Paul, um, they, they were well set up, and yet they failed on this point. And we see it in the American church today. We see it in our own hearts. And maybe we see it here at Highland too sometimes. Uh, one of the most pivotal, I can't remember if I've shared this, but one of the most pivotal moments of my life when I realized this um, was my freshman year in college. I had spent time over the summer um, kind of preparing for um, leaving my church, leaving my place, and going out into the world. And so I, I had gone to this, uh, this um, place, this ministry, where um, they talk about what does it look like to live life with a Christian worldview. And a lot of it's targeted towards all of the, the non-truths that you're going to hear in the world. And uh, I bought a bunch of books. I was really excited. I was delving in. I was hungry. I was eating this stuff up. And I remember um, sitting at my desk. Well, I mean, it was a dorm room, right? So you had, it, would, it was like the desk. It was where everything was. It was about the only place I could sit in my room. Reading a book, and it was some, I don't remember the name of the book, but it had something to do with a Christian worldview and economic theory. I mean, it was like, it was pretty, you know, it was hard to read in the first place. Um, a lot of good truth in there. I've never, but, but um, I was sitting there and I was reading. It was a couple of weeks into school, and I heard God speak to me audibly. And I haven't heard that uh, much in my life. Many times God speaks to me through the word. Many times he speaks to me through somebody else. But this was one of the few times in my life I've heard God say to me audibly. And what he said to me, he said, Joel, I am not about books. I am about people. And it changed my life. It was very close to a, um, uh, it was one of the turning points in my life. I mean, I thought that I was going to go off to this camp and learn all these amazing things about the truth of God, and that was going to be the turning point. But it was a moment when God spoke to me and said, I'm not about books, I'm about people. Nothing wrong with any of those books. Nothing wrong with the truth. Um, And somebody, uh, it was not three minutes later, somebody walked in looking for my roommate. They didn't want to talk to me. Um, I'd been reading a lot of books and didn't know a lot of people yet. Um, And and this person told me later that they they were a little... um, that rolled their eyes when I turned around and said, tell me about you. How are you? I don't know you that well. But it changed my life because God is about people. He was yanking my heart forward at that time into a position where I was ready to respond. I'd been sitting back on my heels, pulling me forward. He didn't say, go do 10 loving things for somebody. It wasn't a prescription but he he adjusted my heart to where I was ready. Why do we fail to do the works we did did at first? Why don't we love actively sometimes? I've been struggling with this because I feel that in my heart sometimes too. Unrepentant sin can be an issue. Certainly, sin separates us from God, and unrepentant sin in the heart of a believer will have very damaging effects. That could be a whole sermon in and of itself. But we have a simple confidence First John 1 John 1.9, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, all wickedness. If you feel apart from God, confess your sins. He is faithful and just. It's just that simple. But I do think part of the reason we struggle to love well is because we're fooled into thinking either that it's less than it really is or that it's harder than it really is. 
I've already addressed the first. Loving well is active, not passive. If we keep our eyes focused on Jesus, then we see that his love is active. It's not less than it really is. But I believe a great deception for us today in this culture, in this day and age, is that loving well through works is harder than it really is, that it takes more energy and more effort. Many times we feel this as we try to do these things out of our own strength. Early on in Highland, there was, uh, uh, they made this video called this Making Room for Life, and it was pretty funny. Uh, Miles uh, was one of the church planning team, and he had a big shirt. I think it said life on it. And it was, black, it was a black and white video, and it showed Miles as he went around with the McCready family. Their kids were all young at the time, and they, um, uh, they would go um, to dinner, and Miles would be excluded from the table. And then they'd run to the van to go to soccer practice, and Miles would be sitting on the curb with his head in his hands, pouting. He'd be wanting to throw the ball with somebody. And so the whole, the whole picture was this whole making room for life. You've got a family running around so much, they're so busy that there's no room for life. Funny pic- it was a funny picture, but there was a reason for it. And, and, and w- we were trying to call people out of a busy life, out of the busyness. But I want to be real clear. Sometimes we talk a lot about make room for life and call yourself out of the busyness. I mean, that's kind of one of the themes that we talk about occasionally here. But there's a reason. We weren't just saying stay less busy. Making room for life doesn't mean to have more couch time, more Netflix time, more Facebook, more Instagram, more football, more bro time, more yada, 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 yada. It's not what it's about. We're not, we're not saying you got to rest up. It's actually making room to love well. See, if we wait until we have enough time or energy or self-motivation to try to love with works well, it will never happen. And if you find yourself waiting you may be doing it on your own strength. Jesus himself tells us how this is supposed to work in Luke 6. After he teaches on loving our enemies, he says in verse 38, Give and you will receive. Your gift will return to you in full, pressed down, shaken together to make room for more, running over and poured into your lap. The amount you give will determine the amount you get back. Likewise, Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 3.12, And may the Lord make your love for one another and for all people grow and overflow, just as our love for you overflows. There's a picture repeated over and over in Scripture of this pouring out, like Christ poured himself out for us. And the more we pour out, the more he pours in. This is the love and works that is referenced here. Somehow our our hearts, our self-loving hearts, get comfortable in this grace in which the Most High God grants us. And somehow we expect that works will just happen. Maybe the Spirit of God will fill us up like a puppet and just make us go love people without having to try. But this Most High God wants to make us more like Him. He's not going to propel us to do things against our own will. If He made us do it, our hearts would not grow more to be like him. So we listen to the Spirit. We lean forward. We open our eyes where the Spirit doesn't have to yank us out of the chair because we are leaning in and ready to love well. I coached swimming for a long time, and uh, one of the things that that, um, uh, kids do when they're learning to swim, actually everybody does when they're learning to race, uh, they have the starting blocks, which you've seen if you watch the Olympics. And the first thing everybody wants to do is they get up there and these blocks lean forward and you're standing over the pool like this, 
And so they want to come back. And they want to set back. And actually, if they pull back, it allows them to pull. It makes, makes you feel like you're launching forward. But one thing we have to teach them over and over and over again is they need to get up on the blocks to where they almost feel like they're going to fall in so that they've got that momentum ready to, to leap into the water. And that's kind of the picture I feel like here. Many times, because the grace of the Most High God is so good, we lean back. We're ready to love. We love people. But we're leaning back. We're not leaning forward, ready to do a work of love, ready to go love somebody when we see it. And so maybe we hear the Spirit, but we don't respond right away. Well, you know, I'm kind of tired today. I'll do that tomorrow. So what does it look like? The works of love don't have to be earth-shattering. I, I, you know, we looked at 1 Corinthians. Love is patient, love is kind. They're simple works of compassion. Loving well rarely happens through epic sacrifice, but instead is usually one quiet work of compassion. Maybe, maybe we have the chance to lay down our life for a friend. Maybe. Very few of us, if any, will ever have the chance to do that in this room. Uh, but, but a work of love, a daily work of love, dying to ourselves one day, uh, we have an opportunity for every day. So who do we love? Everyone. Everyone. We're called to love one another and called to love our neighbor. But it starts here. If we can't love well here, it's harder to love outside. Um, but I do want to say, it's not a lot of times when I hear love your neighbor, I get the white picket fence neighbor look. That's, that's not just what it talks about. We're called to love everybody. No matter where they're from, no matter what their political affiliation, no matter what their views are, no matter how much they sin, no matter what their gender, no matter what their religion, we are called to love well. That's what Jesus did. He was compassionate to us. He loved us first. Band, you can come on up. Revelation 2. Um, oh, well, let me just say, we start here. And twice this week, I've seen families at Highland love us well. One family gave us dinner one night, out of the blue. Another family kept our kids. And through that compassion, we felt the love of Christ. It wasn't done for their gain. It wasn't done because they felt like they had to. It was just a simple act of compassion. Let's look back at Revelation 2, 4 through 5. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand uh, from, from the churches. Jesus is serious about this. Repent, renew, and repeat. And so if there's one thing I want you to take from here, it's this encouragement to repent, renew, repeat. Repent from our sin of not loving well. He was calling Ephesus to repent from their sin of not loving well. Renew their love and repeat the works they did at first. If not, Christ will remove the lampstand. You've heard this many times probably if you've been in the church in 1 Corinthians 1.13. If I have not love, I'm a clanging gong or resounding symbol. True, but this is even more direct. Here Jesus says that despite their adherence to truth and perseverance, their hate for evil, he will remove them. They are not useful as a church if they do not love like they did at first. It is a sobering message for us today at Highland. The, the love that God wants is active. But he qualifies it. Verse 6, 
But this is in your favor. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans, Nicolaitans, just as I do. And so actually, this is a little bit of a check for us. They had taken this license to love and said, do whatever you want. You're a Christ follower. I love you. Go do whatever you want. This teaching, these people, the Nicolaitans actually, um, they were indulgent. And we'll hear a little bit more about them um, in, in another one of the letters. But the, the idea was um, they were quite, believed they could be Christ followers and just go indulge in whatever they wanted to feed their selfish desires. But again, the self-focused love, things that make us feel better, is not the works of love Jesus is calling us to. Each of these letters ends with a call to the Spirit, uh, to listen to the, the, the Spirit and a promise. Verse 7, anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. The message is, is clear. We have an amazing promise. Jesus says, tree of life in the paradise of God. Love, active and moving, is what Jesus wants of his people. Repent, renew, repeat. We're going to move into a time of communion here in just a moment. And there are going to be um, uh, uh, glasses uh, and plates around the room. We're going to remember Christ and his act of love, his work of love for us. He gave himself up for us as a sacrifice so that we might have eternal life. And so in a moment, um, uh, we're going to take communion and we're going to serve one another. And so uh, here at the corner of the room, there will be people holding the uh, the glass of juice and a plate of bread. If you are a Christ follower to a day, if you believe that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, we ask you to take the bread and dip it in the juice and remember his death and resurrection for us. And then take the plate and the glass from the person who served it to you and turn around and serve it to the person behind you. It's a little bit different, but in this way, it's just a reminder uh, of, of how we can serve one another in love. And take a moment, if you don't mind, to to follow those things. I don't know where you are today. Maybe you love really well. There have been times in my life where I know I am primed to the Spirit, where I am taking those works of love, where I'm loving my wife well, I'm loving my family well, I'm loving my friends well, I'm loving people I don't know well. And they're not in big ways. Uh, They're little ways, but I know that I'm doing that. And then there are times in my life where I know that I'm not. Um... And so the invitation today is if you're in that place where you're not, is threefold. Repent. Take a moment as the music plays and repent. Renew your love for Christ, the one who died for us, and then repeat. We're called to active works. God wants, us, God wants to use those works to change the city. He's going to change the city anyways, but he's inviting us to be a part of it. Island, let's love well. Let's do the works we did at first. We have this promise that we will be filled with the Spirit and in fact filled more with His strength overflowing. Repent, renew, and repeat. So in a moment we'll take communion, but first let's pray. Father God, you were good. You were great. 
and you have loved us well. You said in the end times the love of many will grow cold but to the one who endures to the end will be saved. Father, may we not be a people where our love grows cold. May we not be a people who wait for you to yank us out of our comfortable lives to love well. Father, may we step forward in faith. May we step forward, do the works that we did at first, knowing that you will fill us. Knowing that as we love, Father, you will fill us more. That you will um, love through us more. And Father, I thank you for the opportunity to be called to this. It's not easy. It would be much easier just to go about my life and to let you do the saving. But Lord, you have allowed us to participate. Not for your sake, because you don't need us to go out there. Father, but you've asked us to. And you have given us the opportunity to go love well and and to see firsthand how you will change people, to see firsthand how you will change the city. But, But Father, most importantly, to see firsthand how you will change us. And so Father, I I repent um, for when I don't love well. I pray that you will renew your love in my heart. Father, help me um, do the works I did at first. Thank you for your, your love. Thank you for dying for us. May you be glorified in everything we say and do today. In Jesus' name, amen.